They don't make voices like that anymore, do they? I hope you have your Bibles with you, and if you don't, why don't you grab them at this point in time and uh, turn with me to the passage that we just read, Genesis chapter 29. As we continue in our sermon series, uh, Sipping Salt Water, Finding Lasting Satisfaction in a World Full of Thirst, Genesis chapter 29. Of course, Dean Martin's classic 1960 song entitled, well, you can guess it, right? You're nobody till somebody loves you. I think that the song and the lyrics capture well the thrust of the lie of the idol of romantic love. Just listen to the words. Have you ever thought about it? What is this saying to us? It's saying to us, you are nobody until what? Until somebody loves you. You're nobody until somebody loves you. So what should you do then? Then go find somebody to love. Great song. Poor theology, isn't it? And this is the thrust of the lie that the idol of, we'll call it, romantic love tells us. That is, if we find our one true soulmate that everything wrong with us and everything wrong with the world will be made right. It will be healed. Take Sally, for instance, who had the terrible misfortune of being born beautiful. See, even as a child, she wrote that she learned very quickly the power that her beauty and her attractiveness could yield. And she began to even use it during the early stages of her life to manipulate people to get what she wanted. However, as she grew older, uh, the shoe uh, dropped, and it was on the uh, side of the foot, if you will. People began to manipulate her. She wrote that inside, she felt invisible and powerless unless she had a man by her side. She was unable to be alone. And as a result, she was willing to remain in several unhealthy relationships because of it. In fact, she said this, and I quote, Men were my alcohol. Only if I was on a man's arm could I face life and feel good about myself. Friends, this is the story of one caught in the idol of romantic love. Closely tied, then, with the salt water of what I will call romantic love, which has to do more with the relationship in a romantic relationship. The other uh, side of this idol is what we'll call the salt water of sex. I want to ask you a question. How many sex addicts do you think live in the United States? How many people who admit to being addicted to sex? Well, according to the American Association of Marriage and Family Therapy, a whopping 12 million people in our country, 12 million people are addicted to sex, which they define it this way, that they compulsively participate in sexual activity despite life-damaging consequences. That's more than the populations of Wyoming, Vermont, North Dakota, Alaska, South Dakota, Delaware, Montana, Rhode Island, New Hampshire, Maine, and Hawaii combined. 12 million people. And I think that's a pretty broad definition. I think many people wouldn't admit it. And they are. So today, we 
we are going to be talking about sort of two related saltwater flavors. The one I will call romantic love. It, uh, the emphasis is on the relationship. And the other I'll call the, the saltwater of sex. They're, they're really both uh, one coin, two sides, right? These are related but distinct flavors of saltwater. And it's fascinating to me as we turn to the scriptures in Genesis 29 that we see two people, two significant players in the Old Testament story, the patriarch Jacob and his first wife Leah, and they both struggled with this idol but in different ways. Jacob struggled with the idol uh, of sex or sexuality, if you will, sexual desire, while his first wife Leah struggled with the idol of romantic love all at the same time. It is a fascinating story. So let's begin in Genesis 29. And we'll pick up the story in verse 16 if you have your text. And we will begin with the story of Jacob. We'll begin with his struggle with the God of sex, if you will. But before we jump into the text, there's a backstory, right? And the backstory here as to how we get to Genesis 29, it's very important. So I, I want to just remind us of an important event in Genesis chapter 12. There in Genesis 12, God made a promise. He made a covenant with a very important guy. You may have heard of him. His name was Abraham. God comes to Abraham and he promises Abraham that out of his loins, that is from his, his, uh, his lineage, from his family, that an entire nation would be born. And not only that, but that from that people group eventually would come a man. A man who would save the human race from sin and from death and from separation from God, which had been spiraling out of control in Genesis 1 through 12. So God makes these crazy promises to Abraham. Now, that promise to Abraham's, uh, to Abraham then gets passed along to his first son, right? Isaac. From Isaac, we see Isaac, uh, is, is born twins, two boys, Esau and Jacob, and in that order. They're twins. Esau comes first. Jacob comes second. And God makes it known. God makes it known that the younger would serve, uh, the, that the older would serve the younger. That, that is, that the younger, that Jacob, would be the line through which Messiah would come. So this incredible promise is made, but despite this, Esau, their dad, sets his favor not on the younger, but on the older. He sets his favor on Esau. And because of this, we learn a little bit about what it was like uh, for Jacob to grow up. See, Jacob, who we're going to look at here in a little bit, in chapter 29, Jacob grew up... um, He had to grow up bitter. He had to grow up cynical. He was loved less by his father. And as a result, he was a mama's boy. We see that clearly in the text, right? Mama favors Jacob. The older one favors Esau. So this is a little bit of Jacob's upbringing. So as the story continues, we come to Genesis chapter 27. And in Genesis chapter 27, the the time comes for Isaac to give the family blessing to the head of the family. Now, he knows who it's supposed to go to, right? But in defiance, even of God, he intends to give this blessing to Esau. 
but you may be familiar with the story, right? Jacob, whose name means deceiver, slyly dresses up like his older brother, approaches his nearly blind father, and what does he do? He steals it, right? He steals the blessing. He receives the blessing from his father instead. And of course, by doing so, he fulfills God's prediction. So how do you think Esau takes that? Do you think Esau is very happy with this? Of course he's not, right? As we read the story, he's furious. In fact, he plans to kill his little brother. He intends to murder him. And so Mama, who of course favors the younger, realizes this. So what does she do? She protects the younger, right? She says, Jacob, you need to get out of here because your brother's going to kill you. So go, get out of here. There's family uh, to the east. They'll take you in. Go. And so in a, in a rush, Jacob leaves everything that he's ever known. He's not loved by his dad. He's loved by his mom. And he leaves to find uh, refuge in her side of the family. So that sort of gets us then to chapter 29 which is where we will begin. So Laban, who is Jacob's uncle, takes him in and in short order realizes that he's a pretty good shepherd. And so he offers him a job, right? And when Jacob is asked what his wages for that job should be, what does he have on his mind? Did you notice in the reading of the text? What does he have in mind? He only has one thing in mind, Rachel. He wants Rachel. Notice verse 16. Let's pick it up again. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed. I want to make love to her. Now here in these few verses, I think we get several clues that reveal to us Jacob's heart. It reveals to us what the flavor of salt water, if you will, that Jacob was sipping on. I will call it the the salt water of sex, or if you will, the salt water of, 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 of physical attraction in the person of Rachel. First of all, notice how Rachel is described. We are introduced to Rachel in rather sensual terms, in particular in the Hebrew. When you read the Hebrew, it, it's pretty apparent. The, she's being described to us in, in sensual terms. It's, it's, not, it's not normal. Uh, the Hebrew says something like, she has a great body, and on top of that, she's beautiful. In other words, what the text is bringing up to us is the physical uh, nature, the physical attractiveness uh, of Rachel. She was beautiful. You could say for, for Jacob that it was lust at first sight, right? Second, Notice the extravagant bridal offer that he gives to her dad. Uh, You wouldn't know it unless you did some study, but he offers to work seven years' worth of wages in order to sort of pay the, the, the price of the bride, which was the custom of the day, before you got married. Seven years seems like a long time. That was four times the normal price 
paid for a bride at that time. In other words, Jacob is just smitten with her, right? He is so attracted to her that he offers uh, her dad a, a deal that he could not turn down. Third, notice that uh, what was his attitude like? What kind of words did he use after his seven years of working to marry whom he thought would be Rachel, right? Uh, comes, comes due. What does he say to his soon-to-be father-in-law? He says, I want my wife, I want to have sex. That is essentially what he says to her. Now, uh, one Hebrew commentator points out that the language here is unusually graphic. It's unusually sexual in nature, especially for ancient discourse. In other words, this is not how back then a groom would speak to his soon-to-be father-in-law about his bride on the wedding day. That's just not something you would say, friends. You don't say it today. You don't say it back then. But it reveals something about his heart. It reveals something about what he was most desiring. And so the point is that that, that the text is showing us a man consumed with both emotional and sexual passion. He's been sipping on the salt water of sex. But why? Why is that the case for Jacob? Pastor Tim Keller up at Redeemer Presbyterian, New York City, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, rightfully suggests, and I quote, Jacob's life was empty. He never had his father's love. And he had lost his beloved mother's love. And he certainly had no sense of God's love or care. Then he beheld the most beautiful woman he had ever seen, And he must have said to himself, if I had her, finally something would be right in my miserable life. If I had her, everything would be fixed. He goes on to say, Jacob's inner emptiness made him vulnerable to the idolatry of romantic love. Friends, it's true for us as well. It makes us vulnerable to this particular idol. He goes on to say, Rachel was not just his wife, but his savior. He was looking for a savior, and he saw it in Rachel. Like most salt water, drinking the salt water of sex or sexual desire, it only leaves one spiritually dehydrated. And we see that happening in Jacob's life in the most tragic of ways, do we not? Uh, Look ahead, and we'll look at verse 22, if you will. Verses 22 through 30. We see the tables are turned on Jacob in his life. We see the deceiver is about to be deceived. Verse 22. So, So after that demand, what happens? Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. It's a wedding day, right? They're having a party. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her. her. And Jacob gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. 
Um, you might wonder, wonder, how could this happen, right? How could this be? See, in that culture, it was very different, right? The, the, the bride would come into her new, uh, newly wedded husband, if you will, and she was heavily veiled. And as custom went, she would even stay heavily veiled, both face and in body, for even a day or two after the wedding. So this was very normal. And the, the father of the bride plays the old swaroo, right? Um, and then I love what it, in Hebrew in particular in verse 25, you sort of, you sort of put yourself in Jacob's shoes, right? You're in his shoes. You've had your wedding night. You wake up on the marriage bed and, and the text reads, when morning came, right? When sunlight entered into that marital chamber and the sunbeams first burst upon the woman, he, he beholds her and it's not who he expected. It's not the one he had been working for and longing for and putting his hopes in for seven years. Behold, it was Leah. See, Laban, good old Uncle Laban, saw how love-struck Joseph was. Surely he saw what was going on in this young man's heart and he takes advantage of him. In his answer... I don't know if you picked up on this. In his answer to Jacob, right? Jacob says, I'll work seven years. I'll give you seven years uh, for this woman. His answer to, to him is vague. He never says, yes, I will give you my younger daughter if you work seven years for me. He doesn't say that, right? It's just vague, right? Well, better you have her than some other man, right? He tricked Jacob. And of course, Jacob is furious. And so... He wanted to hear yes from Laban because he was so smitten with Rachel, right? He wanted to hear yes. He had heard a yes, but there was no yes that had been agreed upon. So he's angry, of course. He confronts Laban. And what does Laban say? You should have known, right? You should have known that the custom around these parts, right, as we would say in Texas, the custom around these parts is that the oldest daughter gets married first before the younger But he has a great deal for Jacob, right? He says, if you just work seven more years, I will throw in my younger daughter uh, as a part of the package, right? Um, Wow. Wow. The one who had done the deceiving has now been deceived. And the irony here is that Jacob, he just gives in, right? He's just like, okay. He just... He just gives in, right? In, in this deception, his own deception of his father earlier had come crashing down upon him. In Laban, he had met his match. One ancient Jewish commentator once imagined the conversation between Jacob and between Leah the night that they woke up from their, um, in their marital bliss. And I really appreciate what he wrote. He, he wrote this. He's speaking for Jacob here. I called out Rachel in the dark, and you answered. Why did you do that to me? And Leah says in response, Your father called out Esau in the dark, and you answered. Why did you do that to him? See, the idolater has become uh, deceived. So friends, clearly Jacob is serving the God of sensuality and of sex. What might it then look like for us to be caught in the throngs of the salt water of sex? Generally speaking, it could look like a whole host of 
things. It could mean uh, symptoms like our thoughts, our, our desires are, are dominated by sexual activity to the point that it's, it's hard for us to even pursue other activities or, or have other interactions. It, it could result in behavior like the ongoing and persistent viewing of pornography or participating in cybersex or pursuing extramarital affairs. It might feel like you're unable to contain your desires. It could be, it could be in the form of always having to be in a romantic relationship. You always have to have someone. Friends, let me just be clear here. I'm speaking for those of us who are Christians. If you name the name of Christ this morning, if you have been born again, there are some very practical implications. Number one, if you are a Christian and you are not married, but you are engaging in sexual activity, friends, hear me, then you, in a very practical sense, are worshiping the God of sex in that moment. You are worshiping the God of sex in that moment. Because what do we do? God says, worship me and obey me alone. And when the scriptures make clear that sex is meant for marriage and for marriage alone, in that moment we are choosing to worship, we are choosing to give in, we are choosing to obey our own desires rather than what God desires. Girls, young single girls, please hear me. If you are dating a boy and he is pushing you into sexual activity and you choose to give in, you are worshiping him rather than worshiping God in that moment. Friends, if you're married, sex can also serve as an idol for us. It looks differently for us, obviously. It could mean that that in our heart of hearts we have so heightened the intimacy that we experience in marriage, that we have, have so heightened sexual encounters with our spouse to the place that we don't just sort of anticipate it in, in a rightful and healthy way, but how shall I put it? It's, it's that which we feel like will make us ultimately happy. We wake up in the morning and we say, I'm going to be satisfied when this Occurs. One good way, I think, for married folks to tell if we are in the grips or the throngs of this idol is that what happens when an encounter that we're anticipating um, doesn't happen? How do we respond? Are we just disappointed or does it cause a marital fight? Are you uh, empty emotionally? You're just despondent because you were setting your hopes on this thing. Friends, sexuality and sex can be such a strong idol in our hearts. But there's another side to this coin, and we see it in Leah. If Jacob served the God of sex, then Leah served the God of, let's call it, romantic love. It typically works that way with men and women, although not exclusively. And so we read these words in verse 30. Jacob made love to Rachel also. And then these words that are just crushing And his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. Friends, who is the greatest casualty in this tragedy? It's hard to say, but if I'm placing my wager down, then I'm going to say that Leah is the greatest casualty of all here. Just ponder it a moment. Why do you think that Jacob loved Rachel more than her? Well, there are obvious answers. He was going to marry her, right, and and not the sister. But I think verse 17 gives us a a clear answer. Jacob was attracted to Rachel for her beauty. 
As we read through the rest of the story, we see that he was not attracted to her because of her godly character. If you read the rest of the story, that theory comes crashing down, right? He looks at her, she's beautiful, and he's in love with her. Now, in great contrast to what we see about Rachel, how is Leah described, particularly in verse 17? You may have scratched your head when you read it, when we read it earlier. We are told that Leah had, in the Hebrew, weak eyes. What's going on with that, right? Weak eyes. Well, it could mean several things. In that culture, um, the sort of fiery, bright eyes were seen as very attractive. So, so it could be that she just sort of had dull eyes, and that, and that, in a sense, that she was not seen as that attractive as her sister. Um, it could mean weak eyes. It could mean that she was cross-eyed. It's a possibility. It could just be sort of a, a nice way of saying that she was not particularly attractive. We don't know exactly what it means, but, but it's in contrast to the great beauty of her sister, right? And, and, and so this is tough, right? Here we have Leah, who was um, seemingly not as attractive as her sister. And, of course, the sister is the younger sister. Talk about in the wound there, Right? She had been second fiddle to her sister all of her life. So just ponder that a moment, right? She had been seen as second fiddle to her sister probably all of her life. But, but then there's the relationship with her father. What do you think, what do we know about her relationship with her dad? We're not really sure, but as I think it's reasonable to say um, that this guy is, is a bit of a swindler, right? I think that dad wondered... How am I going to marry off the maybe less attractive first daughter because I'm not going to get much for her in that culture so that then I can bank on the very beautiful second daughter? And he's pondering this question. How am I going to do that? And in Jacob, he found his solution to what he saw as a financial dilemma. So what do we learn about her relationship with her dad? Well, she was not as beautiful as her sister, and seemingly she was not as loved by her father as well. But that solution that Laban found meant for Leah that she was not only unwanted by her father, but now, what? She's not wanted by her husband either, who, by the way, favors her younger, more attractive sister. Wow. She was the girl that nobody wanted. And friends, let me ask you a question. What does that do to your heart? When you are that girl, what does it do to your heart? It had to leave a hole in her heart every bit bit as big as the one in her husband's. And lo and behold, what does she do? How does she respond to that hole in her heart? Well, she does exactly what her husband did with Rachel. She begins to set her heart, her hope, her desires on getting his love. Jacob's love. It becomes painfully evident in verses 30 through 34. Read it with me. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. But Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Now notice what she names him and what she says. She named him Reuben. For she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. So she has a baby, and and who is she thinking about? Her husband, right? Whose love she does not have. 
Verse 33, she conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. She has a second baby, and who is she still talking about? The love from her husband that she doesn't have. Baby number three rolls along. Again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last, my husband will become attached to me. Because I have borne him three sons. So his name was Levi. Friends, unmistakably, the names and the commentary after each birth uh, of these sons reveals how Leah was seeking to fill the hole in her heart. How was she doing it? By providing sons to her husband in hope that what? That he would love her, right? She's desperately doing that. But was it working? It wasn't working. Instead... Instead, with each birth, she sank deeper into the pit of loneliness and despair. Keller writes again, every single day she was condemned to see the man she most longed for in the arms of the one whose shadows she had lived all of her life. Every day was like another knife in the heart. It's a great description of what this must have been like for her. Yet... Yet, there is hope, and we see it in verse 35. Yes. Leah was sipping, chugging the salt water of romantic love, hoping to fill the void in her heart with a romantic relationship with somebody else. And brothers and sisters, we can do that just the same, whether we're married or whether we're single. Friends, let me just say this. If we put the weight of our deepest hopes and longings on that person, be it our spouse, be it the person we're engaged to, be it the person we're dating, then we are setting ourselves up for disappointment and disillusionment and failure. Because friends, that person, whomever that person is, cannot bear the weight of such expectations. They cannot do it. This idolatry in your heart will distort and will frustrate your relationship in a thousand different ways. You will perpetually be frustrated because they are not giving you everything you had hoped for and everything you had dreamed for. And you will be frustrated. And friends, that person, they will be frustrated because they can't deliver what you are demanding of them. They're not meant to do that. No human relationship is meant to do that. Only God can meet the deepest longings and needs of our heart. So, we've seen the idol of sex. We've seen the idol of romantic love. But there is hope. We see a breakthrough in verse 35 with Leah. Notice, child number four comes along. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said... This time, you notice the contrast there? This time, I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah, which means praise. I will praise the Lord this time. Then she stopped having children. Friends, let me suggest to you that something had changed. That something deep in Leah's heart had changed between the last birth And this one. Because before, she was trying to earn Jacob's love through having babies. And each of their names 
are about that, right? She makes a statement, and it's all about him. But now, the name of this child and the statement she makes uh, in the birth of this child, is it about the husband? Shake your head, no. Who's it about? It's about God, is it not? She says, this time, it's different than those other times. This time, with the birth of this child, I will praise the Lord. It seems that finally, she had taken her hopes and her meaning and her purpose in life off of her husband and onto God. Laban and Jacob had stolen her life, had ruined her life to a large degree. But when she turned from the salt water of romantic love to the living water of God. Then, then, this time, I'm going to praise God. Then she could stop having kids. Why is that? It's an interesting detail to me. Why is that? I think it's because she didn't need them anymore. I think it's because she didn't need them to earn the love of her husband, whom she thought would meet her deepest needs. No, now God was her spouse, in a sense. Now God's love was preeminent to her. She didn't need to run into the arms of Jacob. She could run into the arms of her God. Beloved, this is what we all need, is it not? This is what we all need. We all need to hear God say to us, I am your most satisfying relationship. I alone can meet your heart desires. My love is the only love that you ultimately need. And this is how we overcome this idol. That's how we overcome the idol of sex and romantic love. By turning to God, whose love is alone, all satisfying. So there's a breakthrough with Leah. But the story doesn't end there. What was God's promise made to Abraham back in Genesis 12? Remember? What was that promise? That from his family there would be a man, and that this man would take care of our sin and death problem. We all know who that's going to be, right? That's going to be Jesus. Of course it's going to be Jesus. That promise given to Abraham went through Jacob's line. Because we see, as we keep reading through Genesis, that Jacob eventually has 12 sons. We know them as the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And later in chapter 49, we read about Judah. Remember this last one that was given from, from Leah, right? We read about Judah. Judah's the last one. And we learn that guess which tribe Jesus would come from. Which one? Judah, right? That one. So, so hear me here. It was through the girl that was unwanted by her father and unwanted by her husband and overshadowed by her sister. It was through that woman that Jesus would come into our world to be our savior, to save us from sin and death. But friends, hear me. He came not only to forgive us from our, of our sins and to save us from the curse of death, but he came to save us our idolatrous hearts. He came to detach us from substitute saviors, from sex, from romantic love, so that we could stop making other people into saviors because we already have a savior. And his name is Jesus. And he is the only one who can help us overcome the salt water of sex and the salt water of love. Friends, that is how we overcome so that we can say in the poem of George Herbert, 
just a little line, but speaking to God, he says, You are my loveliness, my light, and my life. He says, You alone are beauty to me. Friends, that's how we overcome the idol of sex and the idol of love. Let's pray. Father, we're so very grateful that we have stories like this that are preserved in your word. But they're not just stories, Father. They are stories of our lives as well. Because we here, even in this room, struggle with these very same deep-rooted idols. And we serve them. Lord, we repent in dust and ashes. And we ask that you would help us to place our faith and trust in your Son, Jesus Christ, for salvation. And for salvation alone. But not only that, but we would turn to him for satisfaction alone. Because he and he alone can meet our deepest needs. Our spouse cannot. Our our boyfriends cannot. Our our girlfriends cannot. Our lovers cannot. He and he alone can. And so we pray that we would turn to him and find deep joy and love. We pray in Christ's name. And God's people said, amen. Thanks for coming, guys. See you next week.